The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Happy New Year! Today, I'm resharing one of my favorite episodes of the show from 2020. Listeners tell me that they love to hear examples of really accomplished people who make their anxiety work for them. And so here's a leader who calls his anxiety a superpower. I don't want to sugarcoat anything. Living with anxiety is hard. But if you learn to understand your anxiety, you can decipher what it's trying to tell you, manage how you respond to it, and channel anxiety's creative energy and drive into great work. And then you may be one of the leaders who credits their anxiety for helping them get where they are. So today, you're going to hear from Harley Finkelstein, who is president of Shopify, the e-commerce platform that has processed billions of orders. For years, Harley's anxiety troubled him, but it also led him to have a lot of drive and energy for his entrepreneurship and growth. And that's when it first clicked for him that anxiety could be an advantage. Harley spent a lot of time trying to get rid of his anxiety, but finally realized it's part of who he is. He manages it through therapy, daily meditation, exercise, breath work, and scheduling that protects his personal time. I think that his deep self-awareness is instructive for all leaders. We'll be back next week with a new season of The Anxious Achiever. Until then, here's my interview with Harley. So we were kind of joking on Twitter before, but um, you call yourself, or I guess Tim Ferriss called you a power extrovert. And um, I'm a pretty outspoken introvert. So are we are we mortal enemies? Can we get along? I actually think uh, we would be uh, best of friends. I think that <laughs> I, I, I mean that I, I think that the whole extrovert versus introvert thing, first of all, I think has completely been, uh, it, it's gone too far. I, I yeah. think that what it really means is where people derive energy from. And I think historically, I have derived energy from being around people. Um, mm-hmm. I like reading, I like being by myself, but I really love uh, and I feel totally recharged when I'm with people, particular people that I like. And my, my wife's an introvert, uh, but she has some extrovert qualities. And so I, I don't think they're as different as everyone thinks. I think it's just a matter of how do you recharge your batteries. But looking back on your journey building this company from something quite small to something very large, how do you think your power extrovert nature has chipped in there? Well, part of, I think... The extension of deriving my energy around being around people is that I seek out people mm-hmm. and I like telling stories. And my favorite story to tell is is that of entrepreneurship and by extension that of Shopify. And so one of the things that I have done since the early days of Shopify, um, I've, been at the, I've been at Shopify now for about a third of my life, uh, about 12 years or so. And one of the things that I've always sort of felt 
uh, we were not doing enough of, and I don't think, I, I still think we're not doing enough of, is telling the world what we were actually trying to do. I remember that one of the first days where I walked into the office, and I met Toby, and uh, I had known Toby for many years, but I walked in, met him in person uh, when I first started. The, and I the said, hey, founder of The of founder, Shopify. yeah, yeah, our CEO and founder. And I said, hey, why is there no signage on this building that says Shopify is here? And he's like, well, why would there be signage? I was like, well, because we want to tell the world that we're here, that we're that we're completely changing entrepreneurship <laughs> from this tiny little office in Ottawa, Canada. I actually think that in itself is incredibly, it's a great metaphor for the way that I think about our business, which is what we're really trying to do is we're trying to reduce the barrier to entry into entrepreneurship. We want to make small business more accessible. And that itself sounds, uh, I, I hope, like a very a large aspirational goal. Um, mm-hmm. But we're doing it by, by writing software, by, by, by writing code. But the storytelling, I think, is what makes people consider entrepreneurship. And so in many ways, I think that power extrovertedness has helped to tell the world that, one, you can be an entrepreneur, even if you didn't think you could be. And two, Shopify is a great way to do that. Yeah, and it's funny because I've been I've been reading up and listening up on you, and 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 it seems like you travel in a very kind of um, I'm going to throw in some some Yiddish since you do too some mishpucha like um, uh, <laughs> characteristics in your business life in which you surround yourself with a group of people who aren't family but who are close confidants and who kind of stay with you, and I think extroverts are really good at that, and it's always been something I've been jealous of, of my extrovert friends. They collect people and keep them with them as uh, through the journey. That's such a nice uh, thing. I, 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 I take that as a huge compliment because it I, I do think that- It is a compliment, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I think that when you don't separate your personal life from your professional life, which I have never done, I never understood that idea of work-life separation, work-life balance. We can get into what that means and what I think is a better version of that. But when you don't separate those two things, I think the opportunities are that you can invite people into your life that may be your friends, Mm -hmm. they may be your mentors, they may be your advisors, they may be your consigliaries, they may be your colleagues, they may be your partners. But the relationship that you have with them can be almost as rich as, as any of the other relationships. You've been an entrepreneur since you were a teenager, it sounds like. And I want to dive a little bit into the relationship between um, anxiety and entrepreneurship. Your story is actually one that sounds to me a bit anxious making because when you went to college, uh, the economy crashed and your parents suffered great financial losses. Am I right? And you were kind of thrust out on your own. Uh, at a pretty young age, and decided to venture forth. I guess, speaking of storytelling, the great quest, you know, young man on a quest story. Was that anxiety making for you? How do you look back on that time? And how did it inform your journey as an entrepreneur? The title of of the podcast is The Anxious Achiever. and, And I can't think of any better way for me to self-identify than the anxious achiever. I, I mean oh, that. Oh, yes. I um, love it. You are the first true. leader of a publicly traded company who has said that to me. So yeah. I'm going to just like wallow in the joy yeah, of no, that. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's totally true. I mean, some of them may not be anxious and, and some of them may be lying. Um, but they're, but no, they're I, lying. I, yeah. Uh, I've been anxious most of my life uh, since I was a very young child. I didn't know what it was. No one ever told me what it was. My parents would say that I was very high energy, that mm-hmm. I um, was kind of always on the go. 
Super but smart, right? Uh, I don't know if I was super smart, but but I mean, I I, I did well in school. I you know I I uh, you know certain things in academia came easier to me, not because I think I was academically inclined, but because I actually have always figured out the system, mm-hmm. I mean, even in law school. But throughout my most of my life, um, I've always sort of felt this this thing in my chest, and and for the most part, it's been something that I, I didn't really understand. I didn't fully uh, appreciate. Um, I just thought that, hey, like I'm just kind of always needing to go and always needing to do more and always what feeling was like the thing? I don't have like, enough. Talk about the thing in your chest. What does it feel like? I couldn't sit still. Yeah. I, I never thought that I, um, n- now that I've, you know, I've had years of, of therapy and I have a uh, an incredible uh, partner in my life and my wife, Lindsay, uh, who's a psychotherapist. I oh, now know lucky. that, that um, oh, thank you. Yeah. The, the term is, you know, the, the, like, am I enough? Do, do I do enough? Do I have enough? That enough idea was always something that, that I felt, but I, I, I didn't have the words or the, the articulation in which to describe it. Um, but there I am, I'm 17 years old. I'm a first year undergrad at McGill University in Montreal. My, my family is at this point living in South Florida and things go really bad. My dad's no longer around. My mom loses, we lose all, every penny we have, we lose. Mm. And my, my mom calls and says, Hey, you should move back down to South Florida. And I immediately thought, that would be, uh, that I didn't want to do that. I was Mm -hmm. a 17 year old kid in college. I thought that there must be a better way. And I had always been entrepreneurial as a kid, meaning when there was a problem or something that I wanted to do, I would use entrepreneurship as a bit of a tool. So for example, uh, when I was 13, I wanted to be a DJ. Nobody would hire me. So I I hired myself and started my own DJ company. (laughs) And again, I did the DJ company didn't necessarily make a lot of money, although it allowed me, this thing called entrepreneurship allowed me to solve this problem, which was I, I wanted to do this thing and no one would, no one would allow me. Mm-hmm. So entrepreneurship was this, was this tool. And so being 17 in 2001, the idea came to me again, why don't I sort of go back to my tool belt and, and, and get that tool out once again called entrepreneurship instead of doing something based on passion or, or interest. What if I did something based on necessity? And what if I was able to start a, a business that, that would enable me to go to school uh, full-time and then concurrently make some money and help my mom and, and, and support my two much younger sisters. And that was not driven by passion. That was not driven by interest. That was not driven by some incredible ambition. That was driven by anxiety. That was driven by this need to survive. And, um, a, a quick, a, a quick sort of um, non sequitur, perhaps, but but you know, my family are are, are immigrants. Uh, my grandparents, my my father's parents are are Holocaust survivors. Mm. They immigrated uh, to Canada in 1956 during the Hungarian Revolution, and when they touched down on Canadian soil without any money or any uh, education, any opportunity, my grandfather went and started selling eggs at a local farmers market. <laughs> and he did that effectively for his entire life. In fact, the egg stall, uh, that little stand at the farmer's market called Le Capitaine, still stands there today in Montreal. And uh, he did this his whole life for like 70 years. And I think in a very similar way to he decided to be an entrepreneur, even though he didn't call it that, out of necessity, I started this t-shirt business when I was 17 out of necessity. And the neat part about it was something sort of clicked around then, which is that this thing that again, I didn't know what it was, turns out to be anxiety, that I have could actually be incredibly effective in terms of achieving some sort of entrepreneurial goal or some sort of business uh, objective. And that this idea that I would wake up in the morning 
at like six o'clock in the morning, like a bat out of hell, jump up and get my butt either to school or to the office or just get going. That gave me a huge advantage over most people who were still, you know, waking up a little bit later than I was. They were having their morning coffee. They were kind of relaxing. And, and then eventually they would start their day. And I think that's when this idea of anxiousness or anxiety changed for me. Ironically, I spent the next couple of years trying to get rid of my anxiety because I thought that's what I should do. And it was only, you know, towards my late 20s uh, that I realized I I can't get rid of this thing. This is part of me. What I can do, however, is I can manage it better and I can make sure that this superpower gets honed. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. So when did... I mean, because you must have had times when the anxiety went too far and impacted your quality of life, even if it wasn't necessarily impacting your business, right? It it totally did. Yeah. And, And when I was a kid, the way that manifested itself was temper tantrums. Um, when I was a teenager, it manifested itself in me fighting with my parents or having arguments with my parents as a, you know, a 20 something entrepreneur in college, uh, it manifested itself in, in my, my not wanting to explore where this is coming from. Why do I feel this way? How do I, how do I, um, you know, what is the root of this anxiety? Where does it come from? And now, you know, uh, I'm 37 years old. I've been working on this thing for a very long time. Um, I, you know, particularly as COVID started and I realized that my anxiety levels were excel- were um, accelerating, they were, they were spiking. Um, I knew exactly how to manage it. I knew what I needed at that point. What'd you do? A couple things. Um, I immediately moved from daily meditation that was time-based, just a timer, to guided meditation. For some reason, the sound of somebody's voice meditating with me mm-hmm. filled me with um, comfort. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and still to this day, including this morning when I meditate now, I use uh, I do guided meditation exclusively. Um, I began to, to schedule pretty much everything in my life from early morning dog walks to romantic, you know, evening strolls with my wife to uh, taking my daughter uh, swimming. Um, cause I wanted to make sure that I was, I was very carefully planning things in a way that would, would allow me to, to manage that anxiety. Yeah. Um, I increased my cadence of, of therapy. Um, mm-hmm. I went from once every month to once every two weeks. So it just, 
I, again, this is not, I, I don't have the, the magic formula for how to manage anxiety, but I, I, I have, I have self-awareness now that I never had before. And through that self-awareness, I've been able to better, um, find tools and better figure out what I need to be, you know, uh, a really effective achiever. Who was the first person who suggested that you have this thing called anxiety and how did that feel? A friend of mine in college said to me, I don't even know if this is true, but it resonated at the time that people with depression spend a lot of their time looking backwards and people with anxiety spend a lot of their time looking forwards. And I was like, wow. I was like, I never look backwards. I never lament what happened. Uh, I never, you know, I don't go through in my mind, um, you know, last week's failures or yesterday's failures. I, I, I note them. I think about how I could improve on those things so I don't have the same result and, and I have a more successful result. But I don't, I don't, I don't sit with, with past failures. However, I do often think about what could happen in the future, uh, whether or not that's reasonable or not. And so it was that small little sort of factoid that made me think, huh, maybe I do have it. And then I, I that was really when I, I, I started to um, think about therapy and, and start talking to, uh, to a therapist in Montreal at the time, uh, like one of the McGill University therapists. And again, you know, uh, it, she, came, she said, hey, you, know, you might have some anxiety and let's figure out a way to, to talk about it and to manage it and stuff. But that really is where this idea of, of destigmatizing how I'm feeling and I guess my personal journey with anxiety and mindfulness really began. Mm. Uh, and it's funny because now, you know, um, I speak to entrepreneurs all the time. There's 1.7 million of them on Shopify. Everyone I speak to, when I get to know them a bit and we get a little bit more vulnerable with each other and we're able to sort of be a little more candid with each other, we're not sort of just talking about, you know, how much, what are your sales like and what are your <laughs> marketing tactics, but we actually talk like, like two human beings. I often find that um, there is a real connection. It's not a, it's not a causation, but certainly there's a correlation between entrepreneurship and people that are entrepreneurs and those that have anxiety. Well, there are, I mean, you know, and I think mental health for entrepreneurs is a struggle. It's hard to know whether that's a chicken or an egg thing because running a business is, is so stressful, <laughs> but, um, but you know, it's okay. So I want to think about this thinking ahead thing for a minute, because that is the very definition of anxiety, right? It's a, it's a fear of what's coming next, but anxiety isn't, it's not necessarily a positive anticipation of what's coming next. It's not things are going to be so amazing and I'm going to be rich and this is going to be awesome. It, it also is very often this bad thing is going to happen. I am going to be shamed. I am going to get fired from this work that I've loved so much. So when you talk to anxious entrepreneurs as a meditation devotee, right? Because that's all about trying to stop the forward looking and just be in the present. What's your advice for for calming the fear? Because anxiety can also make you make really bad decisions about the future. So I think I'd probably put into a couple different buckets. Um, I, uh, as, as you, if you follow me at all on social media, you, you may notice that I, I'm on TV quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I'm doing CNBC tomorrow, for You're example. You're a dragon too, and right? I was dragging on Dragon's <laughs> Den. And, uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm the president of Shopify. So I spend a lot of my time very publicly speaking about Shopify, but also just entrepreneurship in general. And sometimes I get, uh, I get kind of nervous before these things, even though I've done it a thousand times. I remember reading this book. It's called 10% Happier. Do you know that book? Of course. Yeah. Dan Harris. So, exactly. Dan Harris. Yeah. So I remember reading that book and, and, and I think the, the first chapter or two of the book talks about Dan having a panic attack on live air. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And so I've never had that or anything, but one of the things that I, that I, when I, when I'm, when I'm nervous before one of these really important broadcasts where a different word or a different pause or a different voice inflection may <laughs> change the, the output of the conversation, may change the direction of the conversation, may actually move the stock in some cases, which, <laughs> which is, it sounds crazy, but might, you know, right. It might piss off a lot of people at you too. It right? may, may piss off some people. Um, I'll do something very simple. This was just something that a meditation coach of mine uh, had mentioned to me that if you uh, just do some breath work, you know, four breaths in, six breaths out, four breaths in, eight breaths out, but you know, some sort of ratio where the breaths in are are, are fewer than the breaths out, you you activate um, what he referred to as the parasympathetic nervous system, right? And that's like a that's like a three minute practice that immediately reduces my anxiety immediately makes me more focused, makes me less nervous. And so I always have that available to me. And I know that I do. And that's really wonderful. But on the flip side, when I'm preparing for um, something that's really important, uh, the IPO, for example, or uh, an earnings call, for example, or, you know, negotiating a very important business deal, I actually don't need to be um, to activate the, the, the parasympathetic nervous system, I actually want to use some of that anxiety to anticipate all the things that could go wrong, not because I want to bring my anxiety or transfer it to them, but because it provides me with this incredible checklist of things that most people would never think you about. You can see around corners. Other people can't. Well, and that's that's the most, <laughs> that's the most generous version. <laughs> no, of, no, of, no. Of this, but, I, I, I'm but, like feeling excited yeah. because like I have always believed. It's true. That if you if you understand your driven anxious nature and you can manage it, and I am not diminishing clinical anxiety, which is miserable, you can play out scenarios that a lot of other people just don't. And 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 the the funny part is, I think someone who who may not necessarily have anxiety may may look at those ten risk factors and say eight of those are completely ridiculous. Yeah. So don't even worry about it. But people with anxiety would look at those. You know, but all of those risk factors and say, yeah, it's probably not true, but it might happen. Mm -hmm. And and I'll give you a great example. When I meet with really sort of solo entrepreneurs, so, you know, sole proprietorships, uh, particularly people who manufacture something, a product, physical product, and then you shop there to sell it. When I ask them about what they're worried about, they will go into such detail about, um, you know, macro uh, geopolitical economic issues that may happen in some province in China. And I'm thinking to myself like, okay, come on, like, is that really going to happen? And it's probably not going to happen. Um, but they're anticipating that it could, and therefore they're just double checking certain things, or they're putting in particular guardrails so that it will, will never happen. And I actually think that could be quite valuable. Now it could get too, it can go too far. You can probably yeah. drive your supplier completely bonkers if you're calling them about. Can you give me you know like if you're asking your supplier who's making you I don't know flashlights. Um, can you let me know or send me a white paper on the current you know economic political ge geopolitical situation in your particular province in China? Uh, the supplier is going to say, I, "Don't you just want to know about the pricing? Don't yeah, you just really. want to know about the delivery dates?" But but that that anticipation is not always bad. Sometimes it provides you with a very important guardrail or, or some sort of net that, um, a safety net that others may not ever have. That's super interesting. Um, on the flip side, though, it can also drive your team crazy, right? Because I mean, I speak from experience and certainly during the pandemic, such an uncertain time, you know, anxiety can make you over communicate, it can make you double check 16 times with your staffer who's really got it covered, but you're nervous about it. Um, how do you sort of 
observe and manage any tendencies in yourself to, um, you know, when, when anxiety sort of takes over as a manager, or, or is that not an issue for you? No, it, it, it is. Um, so first of all, I'm incredibly transparent and candid with my team mm. um, that, hey, there's going to be times where I'm going to ask you to do something and you're going to not understand why. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to help me figure out whether or not Sort of, there's, there's there's sort of two pillars of it. Is it right? Like, is it correct? And is it important? Mm. Like, is so accuracy and importance. So, if what I'm asking you to do, like, I, there's potentially some accuracy in what I'm asking. Meaning, like, if I'm worried about something and you're like, there's a hundred percent no way that is a problem, then you can dismiss it. Uh, also, the other sort of vector is, is it important? Right. So, if it's if it's something that just doesn't matter then maybe it's not something to worry about. But I, I talk to my team through these things to say, there may be times where you, you, you hear me asking questions and you think I'm really in the weeds and, and you have to ask yourself, you know, is it accurate and is it important? And the second thing is, feel free to push back on me. If you think that I'm being completely, I'm not being thoughtful about this, yeah. then tell me, hey, Harley, this is, you're, you're, you're over-rotating. This is not important. You're over, I, I like that. You're over-rotating. Right, and because and, 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 <laughs> frankly, in my mind, I may not be. But right. actually, the most important thing I can do as a leader uh, for others is taking care of my own mental health. And so in the same way, I think that, you know, um, in, in the, the 10% Happier book talks about the need for meditation. Uh, simply just to live life and, and, and be, be a, you know, a normal human being. I actually, one of the reasons that I do my morning meditation, one of the reasons that I do some movement every single day, um, to burn off some excess energy. One of the reasons I schedule absolutely everything is not just for me. It's also, I want to show up in a particular way for my team. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as a power extrovert, I, as you know, I get my energy from me around other people. And in the early days of working from home during the pandemic, I really did struggle and I had to make entirely new rituals and create completely, um, new sort of COVID strategies to help myself and my team. And actually, I think a lot of those will be of far, far more value when the pandemic is over. Um, but I, I think that if I am not in a good place myself, it's going to be incredibly difficult for my team to help me. And, and so I, I take that responsibility on. And so what I'm meditating, I'm meditating for me. I'm also meditating for my kids and my wife and my team and my colleagues and, and, and everyone that I, I connect with. That's a lot, though. That's a lot of pressure sometimes, you know, to have to carry the burden of, you know, making yourself acceptable to other people. Yeah, so I think there's two types of stress, right? There's uh, de-stress, yeah. and there's I think it's called the other one's called eustress, and I think those things are really important to understand because, to me, de-stress or distress is the pressure is, is so big that you you're paralyzed. You're 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 on a couch with a blanket over your head, and you're just you don't want to see the world. What I find that that my my version is is sort of this other stress i think it's called eustress i, I might be getting that wrong but i think it's called eustress uh, my version is actually incredibly motivating because i want to show up on mm-hmm. your podcast because i want to make sure mora gets everything that she can out of harley for this podcast and for the listeners um i am motivated to meditate this morning i was motivated to grab i'm sitting here drinking my green tea i was motivated to grab my green tea because that's what gives me good energy after you know 2 p.m in the afternoon yeah um so these things are actually quite motivating for me, and I, I, I don't let them own me, 
but I certainly let them drive me in, 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 in positive ways. So I have to ask you an extrovert question because I really want to know, like, okay, so so I'm like that too. And I interviewed Guy Raz, right, who has How I Built This and talks to all these entrepreneurs and is a famous host, and he's an introvert too. And so, you know, he and I were jamming about how we want to give everything. So So we do all that prep and we give and we give. And then when we're done, we have to go lie on the couch with that blanket <laughs> over us, like, oh my God. But after you give... Oh, I'm 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 full of, I'm full of energy. I mean, You're after this, like, I'm, I'm I'm yeah, I'm 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 full of energy. <laughs> this completely, this energizes me. Being around people energizes me. Um, doing media and storytelling energizes me. Being with my team energizes me. Which is another. I, so I have a different problem, which is how do I unwind? Right. So how for do you example, turn off? right. Um, it's this is a little bit compulsive, perhaps, but you know, Mondays and Wednesdays I do yoga, and Tuesdays and Thursdays I have a trainer. And then on Fridays, Lindsay and I go for a long walk after the week to sort of unpack the week and, and get ready for the weekend. I need those things in my life. I am not at my best self at the dinner table if I haven't done some movement. Um, I'm not able to be as mindful and as present with my children as I want to be if I don't do those sort of things as well. Um, so again, like whether or not any of these tactics or tricks resonate with anyone listening right now, you may decide that, you know, your version is, is, you know, some hobby that just relaxes you or your version is, you know, not running, but cycling, or it's just, you know, doing some walking meditation, whatever your version is. The key to what we're really talking about more is we're talking about self-awareness. And that is something that I did not grow up with. I did not grow up with self-awareness. Really? I did not. No, I, I, my parents, I mean, you know, my, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of immigrants. My, my dad was always sort of in this mode of, of survival. I think it's yeah. because he well, was and the Holocaust of, survivors. Ho- exactly. I think, I think, I think, um, we don't really talk too much about this and I'm sure there's books on the topic, but there is certainly something about, you know, my dad, for example, um, has a strange relationship with food. And now that I'm older and I'm beginning to understand it, it's quite clear to me why that is. It's because my grandparents growing up was like, if there is food, you eat the food on the table because we don't know if the next meal is going to be here or not. And that's completely a result of of being in the Holocaust, being in concentration camps. So so that sort of multi-generational trauma does carry over. And I, I wanna I wanna stop that now. So to stop that now, I have to disproportionately put in some effort to do so. I want to I want to close out here talking about team and um, and how you surround yourself at work with colleagues who can sort of temper and balance you. Like, what have you learned over the years about the people that you need by your side to make things really work and also keep you? I I, I tell that you're I can tell you're someone who's really invested in the infrastructure and the guardrails of your life, which I think is the number one skill that an anxious achiever needs. Yeah. I think a lot of people naturally, and we, when you talk to uh, first-time entrepreneurs and you ask them about, <clears throat> and you ask them about their, their, their partners, their partnerships, yeah. uh, their, co- their co-founders, a lot of them tend to choose their friends as co-founders, mm-hmm. people that are just like them. And then at some point, as they scale, I was talking to uh, to Tim and Joey at Allbirds recently. Uh, Allbirds is a six year old company, which is now probably one of the most important, iconic, you know, sneaker brands on the planet. And so they're sort of at one end of the spectrum. Then you sort of think about the you know the first time entrepreneurs that are starting. A lot of the most successful businesses that I see, the co founders are kind of polar opposites. Yeah, 
the 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 sort of the term that I use is you you two would never be friends in high school. And I've said that to Tim and to Joey. You, you two would never have been friends in high school. And they're like, yeah, of course not. Because like, and it's sort of the same thing with me and Toby. I I was class president. I was, you know, varsity wrestling and when I was in a freshman. And Toby was coding all throughout, you know, <laughs> all throughout school. He ended up dropping out. We just, we never would have connected in that way because the Venn diagrams of our interests and our personalities do not overlap very much. Yeah. But that in itself is incredibly valuable when you're starting or scaling or running a large scale company that everyone brings their own different superpower. In fact, a, a good uh, way to think about it is almost like the Avengers. Um, each Avenger, I'm not, I'm not really into uh, comics, but, but I, I, the, the point is, is easy one to make. Each Avenger on their own is incredibly talented. But when you bring these folks together, each of them has a very unique, a very different type of superpower. You get this complete and utter exponential impact. You know, one plus one plus one equals a thousand. And and so when I when I'm hiring people to come uh, to work with me, I'm really looking for people that are not like me. I mean, maybe we have we share the same ambition. We both want to do important things. We want to have an impact. We both care deeply about, you know, technology and entrepreneurship. Um, we, we both have an interest in building things. Uh, and, and so we're, we have a builder sort of mindset, but the, I, I'm a, I'm a macro guy. I'm not really in the details. I, I don't, you know, I'm not necessarily a detail oriented person. I really like big macro strategy, moving, you know, moving large chess pieces as opposed to kind of getting into the, the, the nuts and bolts of things. And that's the reason why I was such a bad lawyer, to be honest with you, because I didn't care about dotting the I's and crossing totally. the T's. But now I realize that that's, if, if, if that's not who I am, okay, great. The people around me, they have to be really, really good at those things. Mm-hmm. And I think, one of the things I, I hope to sort of zoom out for a second is that, you know, it's been an incredible difficult year in terms of the pandemic, but one of the things I'm hoping that happens is that the, the, the legacy of the pandemic is greater awareness, greater self-awareness, greater dialogue about mental health and, and particularly mental health and business. And I, I, I think this antiquated notion of work-life balance, especially within the most demanding profession of entrepreneurship. I don't think it works anymore in 2021. And, and I, I, it creates a constant state of fracture. And so I think moving towards a harmony where, you know, all aspects of your life coexist and you're able to say, I'm not good at this thing. Therefore I'm going to go hire someone who's so into that thing and so good at it. Um, yes, it shows vulnerability, but what it really shows is strength. And I think that's how you build really great businesses and companies. And and Frank, that's how you, uh, I think that provides a better life. That's it for today's show. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family, to all of our guests for sharing their stories, and to our advertisers who bring you the show. If you love The Anxious Achiever, tell your friends. Subscribe, leave a review, follow us. You can also tweet me at MoraAM or find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow me, message me, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from The Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.